Hello, I'm your host Alan Cowley. This week I'm thrilled to have Craig Dearden Phillips join me. Craig is the founder of three organisations, each slightly different but all focused as a or helping social ventures. Craig is the author of two best-selling business books for social entrepreneurs. He's a social entrepreneur helping social entrepreneurs. So Craig, what drew you to social entrepreneurship? Well, Alan, thank you and thank you for having me on. In my mid-twenties, I'd left university, I'd experienced profound mental health problems and hadn't really worked. And my route into getting into sort of normal life again was doing voluntary work and I accidentally stumbled upon my purpose in life, which was basically to help other people. And what I found quite quickly was that a lot of the organisations set up for helping people weren't very good. So I started to think about setting up my own organisation to help people, and that became my first venture, which was called Speaking Up. Okay, did you have any experience? Was it you know, parents, entrepreneurs at all? Or No. My family are sort of working-class type people who'd always had jobs, so I'd had no role models as such. I wasn't really learning at anybody's elbow, and I don't think I'd conceived of myself as a social entrepreneur for quite a long time. I had a drive in me to create things. I think that was what it was. I wanted to create something which was, I wanted to build something. I've always wanted to build things. And the first venture really was, it felt almost weirdly like a sort of personal mission to build something great that benefited society. That's what I felt I needed to do with my life at that time. Having come out of quite a difficult period in my life as well. So it was all tied up with that. I did get a job for a bit, but I realised really quickly, really quickly, that this wasn't what I wanted out of life. Just fulfilling a job that someone else could do wasn't going to do it for me. I had to create something that wasn't there before. That was a really strong driver for me. Otherwise, I thought, what's the point of me, really? You know. So that drive, that drive to make good of my life and also to make good in doing so help other people was my sort of animating motivation at the time as a young guy of 20, 25. I'm a lot older than that now, but that's where it all started. You said motivating. That just sounds like a huge motivator for you to push forward on this. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Speaking Up, which then became Voiceability, both about what the business is and the challenges you faced towards the early years of that as a first-time entrepreneur. Okay, what was Speaking Up Voiceability all about? Basically, I found out that people who had a learning disability or a mental health problem were often unable to create the lives that they wanted, often with like ridiculous and reason. And so what I noticed as well was that the system for support around people to supposedly enable them to make good of their lives was pretty poor. So I set up VoiceAbility as a workaround of that. And the idea of it really simply was, we help you get control of your life. We help you get control of your money. That means you can control your housing. This means you can possibly find a job possibly find a long-term relationship. For a lot of people with learning disabilities or mental health problems, that never happens. It just never happens, despite the government and charities and all the rest of it. And we said, look, that's bullshit. That doesn't need to happen. So we created Speaking Up really with the view that we can help people to make all that stuff happen, mainly by relying on themselves and finding their own resources and supporting people in a kind of planned and structured way, make a business plan for their life and move forward that way. That was the idea, and that's what we did. So the first years of it were really, really hard because nobody wanted to help me initially except the odd kind of crazy person who maybe threw a little bit of money in our direction at the beginning. I was in Cambridge at the beginning, so there are lots of crazy people in Cambridge, I found, who were ultimately willing to support it. But we struggled for five years. 
I gave up my job that I had, which was rubbish anyway, but I gave up my job. I worked for a year for no money whatsoever. I was living on housing benefit and basically donations from other people for a year before we got any kind of money at all to do the business. And then after that, we spent five years really figuring out just the best method we could find to help to optimize what we were trying to achieve with people. That actually took a lot of trial and error. So we tried lots of things that were kind of wacky and exciting, but didn't work. And over that five years, that first five years, we found a few things that really worked and we could really prove to other people that worked. And then we were able to go to bigger players and say, look, this is what we think our idea is. This is what we've narrowed it down to. This is a sort of simple and repeatable process that we can do with people time and time again and do it at scale. And I'm really simplifying here, but that's the journey of the first five years. And at the end of that five years, we had a group of people who called themselves social investors who said, look, Craig, we really like this. We've seen enough. We believe in this. We believe you've got the ambition and drive and passion to scale it up. Let's do it. So that's how I got through those first few years. But yeah, really, really difficult years. So just before we move on to these social investors, tell us about how you juggled building the idea out for the first five years with bootstrapping this kind of cash flow issue that you had. How did you juggle that? How would you teach other entrepreneurs to deal with that sort of thing? Yeah, I think we were a classic bootstrap job. I'd saved a tiny amount of money. I had a lifestyle at the time, you know, I was very young. I had no dependence and that helped me a lot. I had unlimited time and low financial requirements. I think that was very important at the time as well and tons of youthful energy. And I think on an almost kind of maniac commitment to get this done, to make this happen. I did it as though my life depended on it a bit, which it kind of did in a weird kind of a way because I thought this is my first try at something like this and I've, I've got to make it happen. I was still quite shaky on some levels in terms of my own sort of well-being, but somehow doing the business kind of helped on a weird level because I knew I was building something and I knew I was completely aligned to what I was here to do, as it were. Was that kind of purpose? Yeah. And weirdly, having met loads of entrepreneurs since, whether it's a whatever kind of business you're in, if it's social or mainly commercial in its intention, entrepreneurs tend to be like, incredibly passionate about their idea. That's really what drives them. And there's this deep sense of alignment between what you're doing and who you are that actually feels very authentic and real for people. And I think if you've got that about your business, the rest of the stuff kind of works around it a bit. You'll make it happen. You'll make it work. You know, I was completely in debt and, you know, I was barely able to pay my rent and all that sort of stuff. But I knew that it was worth it because I felt that sense of alignment to what I was doing. And if you don't feel like that about your startup, you're probably not in the right startup, I think. You know what I mean? If you're not sure about it, you're not going to put up with all the hardship, I don't think. So I would say my advice to entrepreneurs would be, you know, if you don't feel sufficiently passionate about your idea, it's probably not the right idea for you to go with. And therefore, you know, listen to your heart quite a lot as well. In terms of practical tips, weirdly, I spent like part of Wednesday afternoon every week of my life being taught how to bookkeep. That bookkeeping experience actually was profoundly important because the cash flow in a small business is everything. And if you run out of cash, you're dead. You know, you can have everything else can be brilliant. You can even be profitable, actually. But if you run out of cash, you're knackered. And that stayed with me, actually. And I conserve cash. I have more cash in my business. People look at my accounts and think, what are you doing with all that cash in your business? 
And it's a kind of hangover from this time when I had no cash. <laughs> because I tend to think, well, the roof Order. might fall in tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And I need cash. And, um, you know, I advise other businesses. I sometimes think, how the hell are you running along with so little cash in your business? Because, you know, cash is oxygen. And if you run out of cash, you really are, you know, if you're very lucky, people might come to your aid. But I've seen so many people with quite good businesses and good passion run out of cash. And it's like a really dumb reason to collapse, actually. So I think if you can learn about anything, you know, don't do an MBA or whatever, do some bookkeeping, make sure you're kind of on top of your finances, even though it's the last thing you want to think about when you're doing it. Because I had that with me and it sort of stayed with me in a big way. My accountant still thinks I'm nuts, but <laughs> I'm not and I'm right. So there we go. That is some absolutely brilliant advice for future entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs at the moment that probably need to go and have a Maybe a course in accountancy or something like that. It just needs to be bookkeeping. Bookkeeping is like money in, money out, you know, and keeping tabs on it. I check my bank balance every day, even today, even when I know it's good. I just do that because I kind of learned to do it at a relatively early time. So, yeah, watch the cash. Okay, so let's move on to after the five years and you start getting some funding in. So you're obviously a social venture here, a non-for-profit, were you? Yeah, we were set up as a company limited by guarantee, which is like a company without any proper shares. Yeah. So it's quite different to what you would find in the commercial world, but that's what we did. And we were a registered charity as well. Yeah. Okay. So how did you then bring in some funding into this circle? Because we haven't really heard about any of this before. Sure. And it's all different. So the first bit was about getting these things called charitable foundations. So grant making trusts, things you've heard of like comic relief and the lottery to chuck money into us. And we became good at that. So you hear, you know, we're going to solve all the problems in the world. Here, have £100,000. Three years later, go back. We haven't quite solved all those problems, but still give us money. It's a dance of deceit, really, that, that happens in the charitable world. And I quickly got tired of it. I felt that it wasn't really honest and it wasn't really sustainable because the music always stops, the money runs out, the grants stop. And I was pretty exhausted as well because five years in, you think, well, actually... I don't want to keep going cap in hand. So my decision at that point, following lots of conversations with people I knew in business, was to try and recast my startup from being a kind of a bit of a charity basket case into what you might call a social business. What that meant was that I had to find a market and I had to find contracts and I had to find business relationships. But to do that, I had to reinvent the business from the beginning. And that meant I had to productize what I was doing I had to sell products and services at scale and I had to do it in a way that didn't mean I had to be personally involved in every bit of delivery. But to do that, I needed help. And I found the help in a very long and circuitous way. I found my way to two former venture capitalists who just hung up their boots from their business. And they said, look, we really think the approach we take as VCs to social enterprises could really work if we've got the right person. And we'd like to give it a try with you. And so I made this kind of interesting deal with these two guys, which said, look, we're going to put in half a million into you over five years. The deal is we want a really ambitious plan and we want to be working with you on this plan in the way we would do in our old jobs. And we want to help you build this just in the way that an angel investor would get involved in a business really, or a more active venture capitalist. And we fashioned an agreement and we went to work on turning my ramshackle spin out a half a million turnover to something that was getting towards five million turnover by the time I finally left. 
which in terms of some of the people listening to this is small money, but in the world I work in, that's, that's chunky, you know? So we made this deal and we got on with it. And our deal comprised three things. First of all, don't spend the money on, if you like, on the beneficiaries, because that's, you know, it was buy a team, buy some executive education for yourself, build yourself an infrastructure so that, you know, you're not running around doing the accounts, you know, get all that sorted out. So buy a team. The second one was never lie to us. So if it's bad news, bad news delivered today is much better than bad news delivered in three weeks time. So never, ever lie to us. And the third one was, you will not leave. <laughs> so I had to say, look, for five years, I didn't quite have to sign blood, but you know, I felt like I was signing in blood because you know, these guys had quite good reputations. They were taking their plunge into this. There to know I wasn't like an idiot who was going to leave and go and get a job. There was a solemn undertaking that they were backing me and that I had to stick with the plan. I had to give that undertaking to them. And that was doing the deal, you know, actually. And that's what we did. And it was thankfully successful. Was that a difficult choice at all? No, it wasn't actually, because again, like I said a bit earlier, I never really wanted a normal career. So for me, it felt a bit like my big opportunity. Life throws opportunities at everybody, I think, but you either grab them or you don't. And I thought, this is my opportunity here because without these guys, I'm going around in circles. With these guys, heaven knows where it's going, but it could be somewhere quite exciting. And whatever happens, I'm going to learn a load from these people because they know all about growing businesses and they've got amazing networks. And at the end of it all, I actually joined their board as part of their if you like, their investment team getting involved in other things. So it all ended really happily. And well, they're both still friends, but you know, one of them is somebody I, I have a lot to do with now. So it was a very successful engagement. Reading Peter's book, a lot of the people he's dealing with, he's known for years. And it gets like that. It gets quite close. It gets quite intense. And you do more together, actually, oddly, as you go along. And that's how it's worked with us. Okay. So after five years, did you then step away and move on? So we did five years with Impetus as they're now called. And then they got to a point where they wanted to be able to sort of show an exit, if you know what I mean. They they wanted to show that they could step away from somebody in order that they weren't seen as a kind of funder in perpetuity. So we basically agreed that we would stop at that point. But they helped us to arrange, if you like, a successor round. You'd call it a new round of funding. And we went in with another group of funders who, on a very similar kind of deal, we didn't have quite the same relationship with them. It was more distant and more, um, a bit like the transition from angels to venture capitalists, really, actually, I think, like reading Peter's book. But it was just different. It was great because we continued to be successful, but it wasn't sitting down in a cafe once every couple of weeks going through everything. It was a bit more long arm, which was fine by me. And that enables us to do the next step, which for us was a big merger. So we were kind of number three in our field, as it was, and we did a deal with number two to kind of knock out number one, which is quite nice. (laughs) And since then, we've become much bigger and more dominant than them. So that was what we did. And that moment actually gave me my chance to move on because we'd got about 300 people by then. And for about two or three years before that, the whole HR thing and the whole managing a large organisation thing was getting me down a bit. And I realised that I wasn't the best at this sort of thing. And I had a great team. But I'd often be in management team meetings and people would sort of realise I was drifting away a bit. And I knew, I just knew that this was like, you know, more than 10 years into this, it was time to move on. So the merger was partly about bringing in 
a kind of, not a younger because he was a bit older than me, but a different, a more chief exec like chief exec to run the venture. Yeah. And that's been really successful because although Jonathan is a very different character to me, he's a much, much more accomplished general manager than I would ever be. And, you know, he fulfills the role of chief exec much more capably than I could have done in this next stage. So it was a great move. They've thrived. They've doubled since I left, which is a great sign. I don't think we'd have achieved that without him. You know, for me, it was about stepping away and also new challenges because my life had changed. I'd had some kids, got married, you know, done all that stuff. And I was getting a little bit older and just thinking, well, I can't run on adrenaline for the rest of my life. I have to have an impact, but in a slightly different way. So that was the next chapter starting. That's a really interesting thing to hear from an entrepreneur that you recognised that and you were able to recognise that and step away. And obviously you then moved on to a new challenge. And that was? That was a company called Stepping Out, which I'll tell you a little bit about. During that last bit of my time with VoiceBoty, my board were very kind and said, look, you know, have an explore, Craig, you know, find out what you might want to do next. So I was given quite a long lead. And I ran into and started coaching somebody who was trying to create a business out of the public sector. So he worked for the NHS and he wanted to scoop his bit of the NHS out of it and set it up as an independent company. And the government at the time was saying, in certain cases, we'll support this to happen and we'll provide some of the startup capital as well. And I was coaching this guy and what I observed quite quickly was that he was trying to do this on his own, really. And the help that he did have was completely inappropriate. He just had like a lawyer and an accountant and he was getting nothing else than that. There was no plan. There was nothing of what I knew to be necessary in setting up a new venture. So I thought, hang on, there might be an opportunity here. And I said, look, let's say I packaged up an offer that contained all the elements of what you needed to create this as a business and then move it on from there. What about we forget the lawyers and accountants or at least wrap them into what I'm doing and put them under our direction? Because these people are just running riot, you know, doing what the hell they wanted, charging what the hell they wanted, as lawyers and accountants do. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So we orchestrated our first spin out from the public sector. And I used that as pure learning because I thought, well, this could be a business model or it might not be. Who knows? And it went very well. And subsequent to that, we did 30 more. And that became my business. So we started spinning things out in the public sector. I started working with wannabe chief execs, turning them into the MDs of their own businesses. These weren't for profit businesses. These were companies which were expressly set up for community benefit. But they were often big. You know, that first business has a turnover today of about 60 million. It's not a small business. And it's grown from 30 to 60 million since it's spun out. So we've done lots of those in the NHS and with councils. And that has been my life for a good part of the last few years. It's been great fun. It's very different because we're not shareholders in the business. What I'd love to have done was to become a shareholder in some of these businesses because some of them become really successful. But (laughs) the actual way these companies are set up, it's not easy to insert yourself into ownership in the way that, you know, an investor would, for example, even if you're providing a lot of help. But in some cases, I'd have happily foregone the fee for doing it for a fraction of the ownership because they're great businesses. But that isn't the model we've been able to go down, sadly. So I've set up a fantastic business development company that doesn't own any businesses, but it does get paid well in terms of advisory. It sounds exactly as if you're an investor. 
And you had your entrepreneurial career with VoiceAbility and you've been following these journeys of these businesses. Yeah. Just without the equity, obviously. (laughs) Without the equity. And, you know, we get good fees, but the business model for that business is a consultancy model. And it's been very successful, which is great, but it's not the same as owning part of a business. So that was business number two. I developed that as a smaller business inherently than the other one, but it's provided the money and the space and the time for me to sort of live the life I've got now, which is, you know, a mix of sort of parent. I've got into kind of sport in quite a big way and also at work and writing because I've done some books as well. And that all takes time. And I teach as well at Cass Business School. So I do more things now. But yeah, it's enabled that, which is great. And you also have the Social Club UK. Yeah, Social Club, which is my latest thing, really, has grown out of stepping out. The story there is that a lot of the chief execs that we worked with and had been working with for a long time basically said, look, we're a bit isolated. We're not particularly well networked. We don't get much chance to associate and learn with other leaders. And I heard it one too many times, I think. And I just said, right, if I create an environment where you guys can come together and learn and grow and develop and collaborate, I will run that once at my expense and you can come and get an idea of whether you think this is good. And if you like it, then you can pay for it. So I set up the first kind of incubus of social club, which is basically a bit of a mix up of, you know, which I think what people would familiar with supper club. So we get a great speaker. We're a bit like Vistage, which is another model that some of the listeners might be familiar with. We have a really deep dive learning set type thing where we look deeply at the heart and the guts of someone's problem in a business. Then you get the board you can't afford around the table. So we do that as well. And we also just have some free association time, you know, the social being quite literally that. So we mix up these formats. We have the better part of the day together. And we do that anything between four and eight times a year, depending on how involved you want to be. And it's a membership thing. So people pay to be part of it. And then they get involved. And so that started as 10 people. That's now got 125 people in it. And we've moved it into new locations, new groups and it's going really well I'm really excited by it I'm now at the point where I want somebody else to lead it (laughs) you know but I'm still leading it and it's still my passion project what makes it magical I think interestingly is that it's not that we just bring a narrow group of people together who've got one shared experience it's got better the more diverse it's got so we actually have leaders from the public sector there from the private sector startups long-standing chief execs and you think well how does that work then And it works really well because people are interested in each other. And I think the environment we're creating, the ethos, which is one of high trust, we do create this atmosphere where you can bear your soul a bit. That really is positive. And people often say, I go to lots of things, but there's nothing quite like social club. That's exactly what we're trying to do is to create an environment where people feel they're getting something that they can go to talks anywhere. You can go to networking meetings anywhere. There's loads of it. What we've got here, I think, is quite a carefully curated environment that people really respond well to. I think that's why it grows. People often bring people into it, which is the ultimate compliment, actually. We're doing really well with it. Um, haven't worked out how to make money out of it yet, but <laughs> we'll manage. It's not a huge thing financially, but we're in some good conversations with quite a few people, so excited. We'll definitely put a link in the show notes so people can have a look and find you out. Fantastic. During this podcast, we've heard a lot about success. Yeah. Let's talk about some failures that might have occurred during your years of running businesses and helping businesses out. Just tell us about a couple of those and what do you think you've learned from them? 
Gosh, failures. Well, yeah, there are failures. A few of the ventures we tried to create in the public sector didn't come off, which cuts quite deep because, you know, although it's not the same as your own venture failing, which is like really bad, something that you're trying to create not coming off when you've put, you know, half a year into it feels immense. And we've had a couple of them. I think compared to a lot of entrepreneurs, I've not had that experience of like failing like 10 times and then succeeding. That isn't my story partly because I can't afford to have that story. And I suppose, I think there's a lot of myth-making about failure. There's, it's a bit of a Californian thing, oh, you've got to have all this failure, you know, and then only by failing loads can you ever succeed. I don't think that's quite right. A lot of the entrepreneurs I know who are really successful are quite conservative in some ways with a small c. They're not reckless and they're quite careful if something starts to feel like it's failing to take steps to avoid the worst version of failure. So, for example, you know, on part of our work with Stepping Out, the weather has changed on public sector spin-outs since the days of David Cameron and all of that. And we have competitors which have fallen over because of that. I've been quite judicious about not throwing too much resource when I can see a change in the weather. And I think a good entrepreneur is quite conscious, you know, because failure is it's not just financially difficult, it's psychologically difficult. As a human being, I'm not as mentally robust. You know, if you put me on a continuum you know, between like, you know, Philip Hammond, you know, super stable, you know, you could probably sort of throw anything at him, he wouldn't fall over. And somebody who's like completely off the scale, I'm quite vulnerable. I've got to operate within limits of stress and anxiety and all that sort of stuff. I've got to create a business environment for myself that isn't going to throw me into like, you know, the worst place. So I've always actually been quite careful. It doesn't sound like from what I've said today that I am, but I'm quite cautious. So I've had opportunities to get involved in stuff that I thought might come off, but actually I've pulled away from because I'm not really sure enough that it's right for me you know, including some things that have gone on to become successful. So when I think about my failures, I almost think more in terms of some stuff that I could have done and could have got involved in and didn't. That's more my sense of like, I'm approaching 50. And when I think of my life in terms of success and failure, actually, if I've got regrets, sometimes it's regrets around some of my conservatism, as much as the stuff I've done, which has gone awry. You know, I'll give you a good example. I was in Cambridge in the mid-90s when you could pick up a house for 50 grand. I had an opportunity to buy some houses with somebody else that if I'd have done it, I wouldn't have had to worry about where I funded my social businesses, right? I could have built a great business around that. I thought, oh no, that's too risky for me and didn't do it and didn't get involved. I just All that I had to do was probably operationally help the business and I didn't. So my regrets are more about the stuff I haven't done, the risks I haven't taken. And When I've done something in business, it's normally after quite an extended time of deliberation. My feeling when I look back on things normally is, I wish I'd done this a lot earlier, a lot earlier. My wife, who knows me well, she said, look, you know, you take a long time to make decisions, you know, a long time. And most of the good decisions I've made, I've probably taken too long to make them. So I think accelerated decision making is something which would have helped me quite a lot. And I think the other thing, you know, which I've observed is that a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that I know have the backing they need when they're young to do it. So if you've got a family member or if you've got an ally with some resource early on, 
I think to get access to capital earlier in your business is good. I found it at about 30. If I've had the people around me that I had when I was 30, when I was 25, I suspect I'd have got a lot more done a lot earlier. So I think that access to capital is important. You'd be surprised at actually the age of entrepreneurs and the average age of successful entrepreneurs because a lot do often fail and then they come through and they learn from those failures at the beginning. You might take a long time to make a decision, but I don't think you're that conservative. If you look at the general population, they wouldn't have done what you do and what you've you know, achieved with speaking up and voiceability and stepping out of the social club. I would give yourself a little bit of a give break yourself, there. Cut myself some slack. Yeah, exactly. I don't think you're conservative. Let's just move on to some of your achievements and also your books. Just tell us a bit about them and why you wrote them. I've done three books. The first one I wrote after voiceability, which was like the no-fibbing guide to a startup in social business, which um, is kind of my best book, actually. It's the one I'm proudest of and it's the one that sold most. It's the one that I actually sort of put most heart and soul into. That's still in print, still does really well. Second book was called How to Step Out, which is all about that guy in the public sector and helping them to set up their business. That was my sort of like, I need a book to build credibility kind of book. And it's done really well, but I don't feel much about that book, if you know what I mean. It was a tool rather than a passion. And my latest book around Social Club is called How to Change the World. And that's basically, it's a guide to social leadership for people who are leading social ventures who are trying to change the world through either their job or their business. I think it's a really, really good contribution to those that are trying to lead. There's 30 interviews with fantastic leaders from Social Club in it, both speakers and members. So I've did that book quite recently, really proud of it. And it's doing okay. It's not quite as well as I hoped, but uh, I think every author says that. (laughs) When you compare the time on it and the, uh, the sales, you think, oh my God. But I think books are really important for me in terms of just capturing where I'm at and what I'm learning. So that's my books about the future. I think the thing I'm most excited about at the moment is you'll notice in this interview that one thing leads to another and quite a few members of Social Club are startups and quite a lot of them are in the place where social investors are still quite cautious about them. They're relatively early in the game and they're looking for kind of informed help about how to get to the next stage. So to that end, I've set up something called Social Rocket, which is basically about years kind of two to five with these ventures. So I'm not really interested in people who are just literally at the kitchen table because that's too early. They need to have been training for a bit and they need to have just got some proof of concept. But once they've got that, they're often just lacking the means. And it's where I was really when I was two or three years into my thing, where you're looking for a range of help and connections and networks and funds. And Social Rocket's just about saying, look, you know, we will help you for this period, but we're only going to help you if it's properly commercial. So we don't want to help you get good at getting grants because one day, you know, the music will stop. We want to help you build a business. So whatever you're doing has to have a commercial basis and it's got to have a social business. So to give you a really good example, we're working with a guy at the moment, a younger guy. He's a former prisoner. He used to be in prison. He spent from 17 to 24 in jail. He's done some serious time. And since then, he's set up a food business and the food business is really doing quite well as an early business. But he doesn't know anybody. You know, he hasn't had any formal education, really. He was in care from being a wean to being 16, 17, going to jail. So he lacks a lot of the kind of things you need to grow a business, except the desire, except this amazing product and the fact that he's generated some sales. So I'm helping this guy, I won't name him even because it's private at the moment, but we're helping this guy create a business plan, raise the money and grow this from being kind of a £100,000 a year thing, which isn't bad anyway, 
right through to early millions. That's what we're going to do. But the deal is we're going to get 20% of that business because that's what we're going to do for him. We're going to do 20% worth of something for that time. And of course, anything can happen in startups. So that's the deal. And I think there's quite a few people like this guy out there who are doing real businesses. But his goal is most of the people he's going to employ and does employ are also people who come out of prison. So what we're looking for is a great business that employs former prison inmates. And he wants to do that. That's his passion. But he wants to go a business and he wants to earn some money in his life because he's got to 40 and doesn't have a financial life beyond what his business produces now. So there's a lot of alignment. There's social in it. There is commercial in it. And there is a need for the kind of expertise that myself and my network can bring to it. So that's what I'm really, I'm bouncing about that at the moment because Social Rocket is, I think, an idea that nobody's really had yet in that it's got deep social and deep commercial in its formation. There's lots of people helping charities grow. Good luck to them. There's lots of people helping businesses grow. Good luck to them as well. There's not many people putting it all together. And I think I'd like this to be putting it all together really skillfully and really well and creating like hundreds of jobs for people who are coming out of prison, but not just like here today, gone tomorrow jobs like you get with charities, getting sustainable jobs, good jobs, good high quality jobs for people who have left the prison gate. That excites me. And so does ultimately selling my shareholding and walking away with something as well, because that will be required. So there we go. Uh, That's what I'm passionate about. uh, That sounds hugely exciting. We'll have to look out for that business once we know what the name of it is. Yeah. Craig, it's been insightful, but it's also been absolutely enjoyable to to chat to you today. So I thank you very much and all the best for the future. Thanks for having me on. I hope for the listeners it's been of some value. And uh, yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Thank Thank you to you, Alan. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor.